good to be with you this Sunday morning. My name is Trevor, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Risen, and I am excited to be in God's Word with you this morning. Before we dive into God's Word, last week we, um, we introduced you to some new members in the church. We've got a few more this week. So we've got some names up here on the screen. If you see your name on the screen, hopefully this is not a surprise to you. Um, you can you please stand up? Um, and I just want those who are, we want to pray for you, and I want those who are in the congregation to sort of look around as you notice who are the people who have, who have shown up. And, and here's really at the simplest idea, membership is the step of saying that this church is my church. Um, and it's, uh, we've, these people have been met with, they have been they've connected with elders, they have shared their faith, they have, um, and they are committed to our body. And so um, I want to pray for them, and I want you in the church to see them and know who they are so that afterwards you can introduce yourself to them. Um, let us pray for those who the Lord is bringing into our body. Heavenly Father, we just pause in this moment and thank you for the new members that are joining our church. And we do ask once again for unity, and we also pray for humility, and we ask for a spirit of gentleness. Would you help us to be patient with one another, to love one another, to be kind with one another? As we as a family journey together, as we sin against one another, I do pray that you would compel us to forgive one another as you have forgiven us. We pray that our family, our church would be saturated with your grace. Would you help us to carry one another's burdens? Would you help us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? And Lord, we do ask that you would help us to be connected to one another, that we would not neglect to meet together, but we would support and treasure our times together in worship, in connection, and in service. Lord, I do pray that as a church we would all contribute out of our hearts generously and cheerfully for the expenses of the church, for the relief of the poor, to the advancement of the gospel both here and to the ends of the earth. And I do pray that when these members eventually move on, if they move on to a new place, that you will lead them as soon as possible to unite with another body. It is a gift to see our family grow. We are thankful, Lord, for your abundant blessing um, in our body and the people that you are bringing to us. We do pray that the grace of Jesus and your love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with these new members and all of us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, can we give them a round of applause? You may be seated. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, this morning would you open up to John chapter 21. And I say if you have a Bible because we are going to read this text, but, um, but rather than we are, we're a church that preaches through Scripture sort of verse by verse, but this time, this morning, I'm going to be showing you different things in different sections, and we're bouncing around so much in these 14 verses that, uh, that I won't have 100 slides. Um, I didn't have time to make 100 slides. So that means if you have a Bible, I will sometimes refer to the text, and you'll be able to look and find it on your own. You may have a Bible on your phone. Um, that's totally fine. You may have a paper Bible. I prefer those because they don't come with text messages. Um, uh, we're in John chapter 21 as a church. We are just two weeks from finishing the Gospel of John this week and next. And then like, we, like uh, Vinod said, we're into Palm Sunday and then into Easter Sunday, which we are very excited about. Um, and so uh, as a church, I got to tell you one of the privileges of, of 
preaching in this church is that uh, we don't start with what's on Trevor's mind this week. Um, we start with what does the text say. And so my, my hope is that you leave this morning with a greater appreciation of John 21, 1 through 14, and even more than that, a greater affinity and affection for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so with that, we're going to dive into John 21. We've got 14 verses. We'll read the text. Uh, uh, we'll uh, walk through the forest together, and then we'll stop to look at the trees as I'll highlight some things that I think the Lord would want to press into us as a body this morning. All right, this is John 21, 1 through 14. Last week, Thomas, I, need to, I have to see his side pierce. I got to see his hands for me to believe. Jesus shows up to Thomas and says, Thomas, here I am. Thomas, blessed are those who believe without seeing. So Jesus is resurrected. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And now John in the Gospel of John is continuing to tell the story of what happened after Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, which we'll celebrate every Sunday, but Easter Sunday especially. This is John 21, 1 through 14. After this, after last week, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now... They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land about a hundred yards off. When they got on, out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When you're reading the Gospel of John... John tells you that Jesus does so many things that, like, not all the libraries in the world could contain all of the things that Jesus did. Which then starts to make you wonder, well, why did he put in the things that he put in? Why tell these stories? 
What's, what's he getting at? Why is this particular story here? If you've been reading the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived, he called disciples, he had a ministry, he healed, he did miracles, he proclaimed he was the Son of God, that he uh, kind of frustrated those in opposition to him, that he was crucified, beaten, tortured, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. And Jesus tell, sorry, John tells you why the Gospel of John is written. Not every author of each book in the Bible tells you why it's there. But John tells you why it's there in the Gospel of John. John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing in him, you would have life in his name. As you read this text, there's lots of things John could have written down. But he writes about Jesus and breakfast on the beach. Why? Why does he write this? Well, well, most importantly or most centrally, he writes it because it happened. This happened. Christians have faith because we believe this happened. Right? We don't just have faith because it feels nice to have faith. I know that faith is kind of sometimes perceived in our world today as a feeling. But that's not why we have faith. We have faith because this happened. Last week, Thomas was unsure of the empty tomb, and he said, I need to see Jesus, which is strange given that there was an empty tomb, and, and the disciples were saying, we met Jesus resurrected, and there's no other explanation, and he had seen Jesus do miraculous things. Nevertheless, Thomas doubts. He didn't believe, but this is written down so that you might believe. That's why this is here. The Gospel of John is written so that you might believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And by believing in him, you would have life in his name. So this morning, as we look in John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, I'm just going to highlight some things that I think are really important to understand about the text that John wants us to notice. And I think they'll be of great benefit spiritually to you this morning. Here are the four things we'll look at this morning. Resurrection, sovereignty, community, and salvation. These are all big $4 words. So um, if you don't know these words, I will work to define them as we go. If you're taking notes, this is where we will be. Four things this morning. Resurrection, sovereignty, community, and salvation. Let's begin with resurrection. Jesus is alive. That is what's happening in the text. Remember, Jesus had been buried and he was in the tomb and now he's resurrected. And John wants you to know that he's resurrected because John uses the word revealed both in the first verse two times and then in verse 14 once. He's letting you know that Jesus, who was crucified and buried and resurrected, revealed himself to the disciples. He revealed himself multiple times. At one point, John will tell you this is the sort of third official appearance. He shows up a little bit to Peter. He shows up to Mary. He shows up to the women at the tomb. But this is kind of his third official appearance. Jesus is revealing himself as Lord and God of the world. Which means, just simply, John wants you to know that the guessing games about who God is, is over. Jesus is God. He is prevent, preventing himself as alive. He is alive. Acts chapter 1 says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
I used to say and used to believe that the most important question in the Bible um, is the question that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, asked Jesus um, when he, or no, what Jesus asked Pilate, which is, who do you say that I am? And for a long time, I have been, I believe that the most important question anybody has to answer is, who do you say Jesus is? But I think this morning I may have shifted a bit. I think I have a new most important question in the world. So if you've listened to me previously, scrap what I said, new question. I now believe that this is the most important question in the world, and this is the question. Is Jesus alive? I think this is the most important question in the world. This is written because John wants you to know he is, that he was crucified, he was buried, but now he's alive. And so John is writing to tell you that the resurrected Jesus is alive. He is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to redeem and to save and to forgive. The one who has come to show us what it means to be human. The one who has come to heal. The one who has come to save. He is who he says he is and he is alive. John is writing this and he's not trying to trick you. This is kind of an interesting thing, right? Like, when you experience something, you often remember the details vividly. In this text, did you notice all the strange, vivid details that John includes? The number of fish, 153. We were about 100 yards away from the shore. Peter, he was took his clothes off to work, and now he throws his clothes back on before he throws himself into the, into the water. The net, even though it had so many fish, wasn't torn. John is giving you all of these details because this is what John saw. He remembers this because this is real. Now, let me, let me sort of dispel a myth for you. Here's what we sometimes think. We think, well, this is, maybe this is just a fictional story, and these details are added in order to convince us it's true, but in actuality it's not true. The notion of writing fiction, where we then add details to make something appear true that isn't actually true, is actually been around in modern literature for just the last couple of hundred years. Now, you may not know that, but I'm telling you that now. You can go Google that later, look that up. That is a product of our modern times, that we now write fiction and we include details in order to convince you, oh, this really feels real. But 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, nobody wrote fiction and included details for you to think it was real when it wasn't. This isn't fiction. This is history. This is eyewitness. This is 153 fish. Why? Because it's some sort of Kabbalistic special 153 number? No, you can read every commentary and everyone's going to say the reason it's 153 fish is because it's 153 fish. There's no special symbolism. There's no deeper meaning. It's just like we counted all these fish and there was 153. I'll never forget that number, 153. That's why it's in here. This is John's memory. John remembers seeing Jesus and not recognizing and them going, that is him. It's him. And he tells Peter, that's him. And then Peter just throws himself into the water. He remembers this. Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. He's not a zombie, right? This isn't the last of us. This isn't, this isn't some sort of disease he has. Like, like Jesus was fully dead, fully buried, and now he's so alive that you discover that as they're encountering Jesus, 
he, he is both recognizable and non-recognizable. Last week, they locked the door, and he shows up in the room behind the locked door. They don't know how it happened. I don't either. They're just telling you what happened. In the same way, they don't recognize it's Jesus, and then they do. Jesus is resurrected. Now, one of the things that people believed, some Jews believed at the time, was that at some point in the future, at the end of the end of time, essentially, there was going to be a moment where in which um, the dead would be raised, resurrection would happen, and that that would happen in the end to everybody. That's what some Jewish people believed. Nobody believed that in the middle of history, one guy would be resurrected. And that's what happened with Jesus. And it happened with Jesus to declare to everyone that what happened to him will happen to all of us eventually. Jesus is resurrected. He's not a ghost. He's not, um, he's, he's, he can eat breakfast. Do you notice this? He eats food in the last, in the last chapter he's eating food. He's making breakfast. This is physical Jesus with a brand new physical body. Funerals are hard to attend because a funeral always, always, always implicitly points to some sort of future. It's almost inescapable, right? Even if you don't want it to be, even if you are a stubborn, death is all there is and nothing is ahead of us. And if you go to funerals, there is a sense in the room that like, but where are they now? And what's going to happen in the future? And is this finality truly final and you can sense that at every funeral we are pointing to the future and the reason that we are pointing to the future is because in Christ there is a future for all of us and that new future includes a new resurrected body now this is important because um, no one else teaches this this doesn't, you're not going to get this from any other religious tradition. If you ask people, stop anybody person on the street, and most people are going to say they believe, well, a lot of people are going to believe in some sort of like afterlife, some sort of heaven, right? And when even Christians think of heaven, they kind of think of heaven as the end where we're sort of disembodied floating souls in the heavens or something like that. But the Christian Bible proclaims that the future is not just heaven where we are souls in heaven, but the future is resurrected body and the restoration of material. I don't want to, I'm not trying to go on like too deep of a philosophical tangent here, but I do think that we are entering into a world where in which there's a new separation between body and soul. I don't know if you've noticed this in culture, where we say like, my body is like this, but I am like this, and their discontinuity, my, my mind is right, and my soul is right, and my body is wrong. And we sometimes see the body as like bad, and that's kind of an ancient sort of uh, there's a viewpoint called Gnosticism, which this emerges. We have a new Gnosticism in the world today. You can ask me about this at Pizza at the Pastor if you want to. Um, uh, but um, So that's sort of happening. But and the reason I want you to see that Christianity rejects that is because Jesus is resurrected in his physical body. His physical body is transformed, which means that your physical body will one day be restored, renewed, and transformed. Hallelujah. If you're not familiar with, there's a few people like I'm, I sometimes will quote, you should know who Joni Erickson Tata is. You don't know who she is, you should write her name down, you should read everything she's written. You should know her. In 1967, she was in a diving accident, and she's a quadriplegic to this day. Um, she can't use any of her 
limbs. Um, and I want you to hear, hear her as someone who is um, bound in a wheelchair as a quad. I want you to hear how, how, how this gives her something that nobody else has, that no one else can offer. She says this, I can, this is Joni, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed with righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives to some, someone, uh, someone who has a spinal cord injury like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsied? brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives to someone who is a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and new minds. Only the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Robert will walk again. He will. The question is how long. Right? Right, Robert? We're, at, we're hoping today, but if not today, he will, because Jesus is alive, and he's resurrected. Okay, uh, I, if you don't believe this is true, you should want it to be. Some of you are just like, I, I don't know if I think this is true. I hope that you want it to be true. That's a good starting place. If you have more questions, you can, well, Pete's after, you can ask him. All right. Secondly, Sovereignty. Um, do you notice in John 21 that they don't catch anything? These fishermen don't catch anything. All night they catch nothing, verse 3. Verse 6, Jesus, a voice tells them, cast on the right side, and all of a sudden they catch 153 fish. Now the disciples know this isn't how you catch fish. You don't catch fish by catching nothing all night and then just, oh, maybe we'll try the other side, and there's 153. That's not how this happens. It was so much that they had to haul it in. The nets could barely contain themselves, though they don't break. They had no results. All their work, all their effort, all their trying to fish produced nothing, and then Jesus happened. Jesus has authority. He is sovereign. Sovereign here, I mean that Jesus is over all, Lord of all. Everything happens kind of by him. This moment is a sign of the authority of Christ. He walked on water, and he, by a word, can call fish into a net. And John, in that moment, knows it's the Lord. Because this is the same voice that quiets the storm. Jesus speaks to the storm, and the wind and the waves obey him. This is how a later follower of Jesus, a guy named Paul, will say it in the book of Colossians. He will say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things have been created. He has authority of all of the fish. 
He can do that. He has authority over storms and fish, and that means he has authority over whatever obstacles you are facing. Your, the economy, your future, the nations that wage war, all of this sits under Jesus as Lord of the universe. This is the starting point. And I wonder if it's your starting point. Here's what I mean by that. I wonder if you start your day each day by recognizing that this is God's world and that you're just living in it. That he is Lord over everything. And that everything you have is a gift from him. I wonder if you wake up in the morning and your first thought is the sovereignty of God. And I wonder if you marvel at his authority and his power and his love for you and his control. Or if you wake up in the morning and you start with politics. Please don't do that. Don't wake up in the morning and start with the stock market. Especially, especially not recently. Don't wake up in the morning and start with news. Please don't wake up in the morning and start with the cultural changes. Start each day with the supremacy of God. And let me press this into us because I think it's important. Because Jesus is God, there is not a limited amount of resources. We live in a, we live in a world of scarcity. Read, I mean, every day, it just constant people competing for what they think is a single slice of pie. And everyone's worried that if that person's successful, I can't be successful. If things work out for them, they can't work out for me. There's a limited number of success we think in our minds. And therefore, we feel constantly like there are scarce resources and we have to fight for them day in and day out. Like some of you are here right now in church because you feel like you're supposed to be, but you also kind of feel like you want to be somewhere else because you're missing out on opportunities that you feel like you need to make happen in order for things to go the way you want them to go. We grind, we hustle, we are competing. We're asked questions, are you going to be a winner or are you going to be a loser? Chick-fil-A is so confusing. <laughs> There's no day when our family desires Chick-fil-A more than Sunday, and yet they're closed. Look at you, Brad. Do something about that. No, um. Chick-fil-A's closed on Sunday. Why are they closed on Sunday? They give up every year about $100 million, if not more, to stay closed one day a week. That's a foolish business model. But built into the ethos of their, of their company was the sense of, no, we want to care for our employees, we want them to work hard, and we want them to rest well. It's foolish, and yet they are ridiculously successful because they believe that the employees matter, and they would rather be faithful in the way that they do their business in light of who God says he is, than rather than hustle and grind and compete at every expense. There is enough for you to be faithful. And so our job is to trust in God's resting. Real life is Colossians 1. Real life is that Christ is over all. The breath you are breathing right now is from him. The cells that are dying and being remade in your body right now are from him. That shelter you have, Jesus gave it to you. That food you have, that water you have, that money you have, Jesus gave it to you. It doesn't just come from the land, it comes from the Lord. 
He is in charge of all creation. So you must rest trusting that he will provide. But you'll never rest if you're always grinding. If you're always hustling. If you've ever said to a friend or a colleague or a coworker or your spouse, I can't take a day and rest, then you are operating under the view that you can do more in your life with your own unfaithfulness than God can do with your faithfulness. There's a guy who's famous right now. His name is David Groggins. He's like an old Navy SEAL. He seems to be on a bunch of podcasts. And he has this great line. Sometimes you'll see it or you hear people quote it. I don't stop when I'm tired. I stop when I'm done. And I'm like, yeah. That's cute. That's how you kill people. What are we talking about? Like, you were made to trust in the Lord for the obstacles that you face. The answer is not you. You are not the answer. He is. Now, I'm not calling you to sort of lay in bed all day and just ask God. That's not what I'm saying. I think Martin Luther famously once said, pray as though everything depends on God and then work as though things depend on you. Like, there's a balance here, without a doubt. But what I'm asking you to, to sort of think about is, this is not about your neighbor. This isn't about how other people need to hear this. This is about you. Will you trust the Lord or not? That's the question when it comes to God's sovereignty. Third, Community. Notice that in John chapter 1, they are sitting in a boat together. John wants to highlight that the disciples are together. Why are they together? It's kind of dangerous for them to be together at this point. But they had met, resurrected Jesus already, and they decided they were going to stick together. And I wonder, how many of them wanted to be in a boat together? I like the way that the text reads. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. I wonder how many of those seven who were in that boat wanted to be in that boat all night struggling to catch fish. I don't know if they wanted to be in a, in a boat together, how much they wanted, but I think this image of them together struggling to catch fish is a great picture of community. Sometimes that's what church life feels like. feels like trusting Jesus, being in a boat, and struggling together. And let's be honest, I would rather not struggle. Anybody else would just, anyone want to just do church without any struggle? Anyone else, just me? I just, it's, we struggle together. We struggle because we love choices. We have so many choices, more choices than we've ever had before. And often today, young people particularly are sold a kind of God and me mindset. All I need is just me and Jesus, well, or me and Jesus and the Bible which tells me about Jesus. But that same Bible which tells you about Jesus tells you that you need other people. You need other people. We have, new, we have members joining the church, and that's right and good. Everybody needs to have some people in the church, in a church that they are committed to. If not our church, go find a church. I'll support you in that. But you need others. We learn more together. I, do you notice that it's John who first notices that it's Jesus, and he tells Peter. He sees what Peter can't see. I might say it this way. You don't know Jesus and won't really know Jesus until you know other Christians, and you won't really know Christians until you know Jesus. We need one another. C.S. Lewis 
famously writes in his book, Four Loves, um, where he's talking about the love of friendship. And he, uh, C.S. Lewis, if you didn't know this, was good friends with um, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and they had another friend named Charles. And, and, and Lewis is wrestling in the four loves about what happened when, um, when Ronald passed away, when Tolkien died. And here's what Lewis says. He says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles, oh, I said, I mixed that up, sorry, not wrong. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a joke only Charles would make. Far from myself having more of my friend Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of my friend Ronald because Charles is away. Do you get the point he's making? That in community, we bring things out of each other that we otherwise wouldn't be able to see on our own. But community is hard. It's hard in a world of endless options. It's hard to do community when you can just scroll endlessly on your phone. And it really is endless, isn't it? Just one after the other, after the other, after the other. Non-stop. It's hard to give that up when we recognize that we are facing the challenges of community. We're going to rub up against each other in difficult ways, but we will know each other better in community. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a liar. And it's lying to me and to you. And so you'll see things in my life that I don't see. And if you love me and you're in community with me and you've got proximity to me and you've got permission from me, you'll come to me and you'll say, Hey, Trevor, we noticed this thing in your life that maybe you don't see. And I'll praise the Lord, hopefully praise the Lord for that. Because we need each other, because we see each other in ways we can't see ourselves. Avoid the view that I just need God and myself. If you're not a part of any sort of group, come, go to the Saturday Sixes with the women, join a community group, come to the men's breakfast, take a step. If you're not, you were not made to follow Jesus by yourself. You need us and we need you. And so we're here for you. But get out of your comfort zone. Invite some people in. Develop some friendship. Because it's hard out there. It's hard in here sometimes too. But it's hard out there. It's a, sorry, I just know that some of you are like, I don't have the time. I don't have the time to build friendships or relationships. I've got too much to do. And I'm like, there goes scarcity again. Who gives you your time? Who gives you your breath? God does. All right, anyway. Last, salvation. Wrap up with this. A lesson from Peter. Uh, okay, if you're, um, I just love this. I just want to end here. I'm just so excited about this. Okay, John chapter 21, miraculous catch of fish. If you've been reading the Bible, you would notice that this is not the first time this has happened. It happens all the way back in Luke. In Luke, Jesus is in the boat with Peter. And he says, lower your nets down. And Peter catches a ton of fish. Luke chapter 5. You can read the story. Luke catches a ton of fish. and uh, Sorry, Peter catches a ton of fish. And do you know what Luke tells us Peter says? He says this. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. 
That's what happens in Luke chapter 5 at the miraculous catch of fish. They don't have enough fish. They've been fishing all night. Jesus says lower their nets. They catch a bunch of fish. The nets break in that one. It's, a, it's the same thing, essentially. It happens twice, right? This is years before. And what's Peter's reaction to the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5? Get away from me, Lord. I'm sinful. John chapter 21. Miraculous catch of fish. It's the Lord. And Peter throws himself into the water to go to Jesus. Luke 5, get away from me. John 21, he, like the, the verse says he threw himself in. He doesn't just like, he like, he's, John remembers him diving into the water to get to Christ. Why do we get such a different reaction in Peter from Luke 5 and John 21? Two different times. What's changed in Peter? In Luke When Peter sees the miracle and he sees Christ, he sees his sin. In John 21, when he sees the miracle and he sees Christ, he sees his Savior. Do you see the difference? In Luke, he says, get away from me. In John, he wants to be close. Peter sees that the resurrected Jesus is the one who paid for his sins. It's dealt with. It's done. Unity with God for Peter is not based on what Peter does, but it's based on what Christ has done for him. He now sees, he knows he's still a sinner, but now he sees that his communion with Christ is not contingent on what he has done, but what Christ has accomplished for him. This is the gospel. The heart of the gospel is to recognize, yes, we are sinful, but what separates us from God is not us needing to work on our sin so we can get close to him, but rather us to leave it in the boat and to flee to the one who has died for us and has been raised for us. Your salvation is not in you, it's in him. Luke 5 is a natural reaction. John 21, that's what God made us for. Our sin can no longer keep us from Christ. He has died for it. He has paid for it. Our response is to turn from it and run to him and find your Savior on the beach with open arms saying, come home. I want to have breakfast with you. Is that your picture of God? Come here. Come close to me. I died. I've raised again. I want to have breakfast with you. Is that your conception of God? Or is it... Let me sort my stuff out, and then maybe I'll come to you. If you are a sinner this morning, swim to Jesus. All right, let me close. Brothers and sisters, may we trust in the resurrection. May we trust in Jesus for what we need. May we commit to community and life together. May we see that Christ has made this all possible. And may we recognize that salvation lies in what he has done and not what we do. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are here, that you're present among us. What a shame it would be if people came into this space longing to encounter you and they just met us. Lord, we we believe that you're here, that your spirit is here, and that you're calling us. You're calling us to trust you with the the work that we have. You're you're calling us away from a scarcity mindset. You're calling us away from isolation. You're calling us into trusting your sovereignty, into community, into the hope that is really hope of the resurrection for all of us. And you're calling us more than anything just, you're calling us to Christ. 
You're calling us to Christ, where we would see in him breakfast served as we've repented, turned of our sins, and have fled to our Savior. Lord, I pray for those who do not know the joy of their salvation because they haven't turned from their sin. I pray that you would convict them of their sin, help them to get a picture of the resurrected Jesus as so compelling that they might say, only Christ can save me. I can't save myself. I need him. And they would fall at his feet and they would receive salvation. Lord, I pray for this church and I pray that John 21 would open our eyes to the beauties of who you are and what it is that you're doing. I pray that you'd convict us. I pray that you'd shape us. But more than anything, I pray you would transform us. We don't want to leave this room different. Sorry, we don't want to leave this room the same. We want to leave changed by you. And just, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we go through the motions, the way that we stay in the same patterns. Give us the courage to be able to step in faith, trusting you when it's hard. I pray that over our families. I pray that over these brothers and sisters. I pray over our friends who are here. Lord, we thank you for this morning and for John chapter 21. I pray that we would not leave this room this morning without giving you our worship, for you are worthy of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.